and hello, hello. This is James Lindsay. You are listening to the New Discourses podcast, and we're going to do another episode of the Groomer Schools series. So there are two of these that exist so far. This will be the third episode. I don't know if this series will continue to expand. If I run into things I think are worth talking about, I'll keep adding to it but there's something worth talking about now. So to kind of briefly summarize the two previous episodes in this little series, Groomer Schools, and the first of the, the the episodes, I talk about the long history, not just, not really, I said it's the long history of sex education, but really it's the long history of communists using sex education in particular to destabilize children. And so there is there is a long trajectory going back to George Lukács and the Hungarian Revolution in particular, uh, and then seeing the kind of the development and birth and installation of queer theory into the school. So you can see the point of that is to show you that there is a, a, a communist agenda that has been running for over 100 years that involves the kind of sexual education that we see in our schools today. Now, in that podcast, I do not get into, say, Alfred Kinsey. I don't get into the gender stuff of John Money. I don't get into any of that kind of stuff. I don't know that stuff as well. Kinsey, I know, was uh, funded by the Rockefeller Foundation and is kind of the the, the father of all of this sex education. And I know in our grooming schools today, they're making it now where children in schools have to fill out the uh, survey or identify their Kinsey, their Kinsey score, which refers back to this, this groomer. And the score is sort of like how, uh, how straight or gay and sort of sexually kinky are you? And so you're supposed to figure this out as children now in schools um, as part of the so-called comprehensive sex education, which isn't really about educating about sex as in sexual activity as in safe sex or whatever. It's about all of this other nonsense. And so in episode one, I don't touch on Kinsey. I don't touch on, you know, the gender ideology in the way that John Money uh, capitalized upon this base created by the feminists and all this other nonsense of the gender things. It's own long story. We don't have to get into it right now. Um, I don't touch on any of that, but I do talk about the sex education program that was used in the Hungarian revolution and that there has been a long trajectory leading up to queer theory being installed in our schools that ties it all into what literally amounts to a communist plot to destabilize America. In particular, if you remember the cultural Marxist I've talked about here on the podcast before, Antonio Gramsci, identified five key areas of culture that need to be infiltrated and uh, made counter-hegemonic. In other words, they have to be turned upside down and turned into communist uh, values dispensaries or whatever. These five cultural pillars he, he, he named that need to be disrupted and made communist if you want to be able to make a communist revolution in the West. And he would have written this, you know, in the 1920s. And these five pillars are family, religion, education, media, and law. And so this is particularly uh, relevant. Of course, it's perpetrated through the media uh, very strongly, but it's particularly relevant to um, not only also in education, but to disrupting the family. So the goal, how are they going to disrupt the idea of the family structure? Well, you create a plot, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this in this episode of the podcast, um, where you make it so that the children feel like their parents can't understand them. And so that's going to be one of the three big topics of the podcast today, where we're going to kind of draw some of these themes together. The second episode of the Groomer School series, I read an academic paper from a queer theorist talking about queer theory in early childhood education, um, which is kind of a monstrous paper, uh, Queer Futurity and Childhood Innocence Beyond the Injury of Development by Hannah Dyer from Carleton University. Uh, in the journal 
Global Studies of Childhood from 2016. I won't go all the way into that, but you can recall, I read the whole paper, but you can see that the, the author is saying that we need to intervene all the way to the bottom of early childhood education and in terms even in terms of developmental psychology and bring queer theory into understanding that with the purpose as she says in her own words uh to to destabilize the idea of childhood innocence to to frame innocence out as though innocence is a social construct that was created by adults, foisted upon children for their own oppression, and that children need to be made less innocent. Um, and she says that, you know, this is all maintained in her own words, you know, that there's a that there are all these theories of healthy childhood development and that queer theory needs to be brought into those because it's actually very damaging. She makes all kinds of strange arguments. She says, I dwell on the contradiction that results from the synchronous assumptions of the child's asexuality and proto-heterosexuality to show how emphasizing sexuality within a discussion of children's education is constructive. And then she goes, what does all that mean? She's saying that there's a contradiction that we say that children, being children, are asexual. They are not, in fact, specifically asexual. They're, in fact, presexual, uh, to be accurate. Um, they will be. They will grow into sexual entities, but they are not specifically sexual entities. Um, and the fact that they are not sexually mature yet, they are there. But she says that, well, we groom children through ideas, and, and it's reinforced by the idea of childhood innocence, but we groom children notice the iron law of woke projection there, into a proto-heterosexuality. We teach them from a young age that boys should be with girls and girls should be with boys, at least for most people. And that this, of course, creates a very difficult time for LGBTQ people, children in particular. And so she then rails on the It Gets Better campaign that frames out that challenge that uh, gay and lesbian and bisexual children will face Um as Dan Savage framed it out as being ultimately character building and encouraged to avoid youth suicides and other problems. This campaign called It Gets Better, you come out as an adult when you understand your sexuality, which has a developmentally appropriate arc to it. It gets better, he said, you come out better uh, as a result of and, and life gets better. It's very difficult. To, it, basically, the theme is it's very difficult to be a gay teenager, but it gets better. Don't kill yourself. I promise you it gets better, speaking from experience. So this is a great kind of mentorship angle Dan Savage creates. And of course, so the queer theory has to destroy it. Um, and she says essentially that it that it uh, acknowledges that there's this oppression of, of gay children by the idea of normativity itself that needs to be abolished. And so she argues and this is consonant with kind of the second one of the second the second thing I really want to kind of summarize in this episode of the podcast. It's kind of constant with this idea that um, she says that, that LGBTQ creating a stable LGBTQ identity is not a good idea. It's not the mission of queer theory. It's in, so what's left is to destabilize the identity of the child to keep them completely fluid and unable to know themselves. And so, you know, these two podcasts have been very, very popular here on New Discourses. They've been more popular than average, as far as I can tell from the numbers I've seen so far and how long they've been out. Um, I'm hearing that they're having a great impact. So I think they're important. You should listen to the, both of the arguments in full. You can hear me read through this entire ridiculous paper. And the second takes about two hours. The first one's about an hour. In this episode, I want to tie those together, put them in context, and then add a third piece, which is how critical race theory actually integrates into this, which is 
actually very important. And you're going to see when we start thinking about it in terms of A, that there's a plot involved and B, that you have this identity destabilizing function that's meant to cut and sever ties from the family uh, and undermine the institution of the family. Um, what you're going to actually see is what we're seeing, whether it's through the brand name of social emotional learning or whether it's under comprehensive sex education, whether it's under culturally responsive or sensitive or literate or whatever education or teaching or whatever the other brand names happen to be, what you're going to see is that there is actually this coordinated program and what it reproduces is Mao's program in the schools that created the Red Guard. The goal is to use your children as the tools that are going to destabilize society. And that's why we have groomer schools. It's not just to groom kids for the pedophiles, etc., which is something that's happening. I think I characterize that. I know I characterize that in one of those two podcasts. I don't remember which one of the two it is, but it's the uh, the deal that Saruman makes with, with Wormtongue in the Lord of the Rings, for those of you who are dorks like that in the two towers, you know, Saruman basically says you destabilize King Theoden and the, the, the Rohan, uh, army so that we can conquer from this side or whatever for his bid for whatever he's doing. And basically you can have your pick of the women. And of course he's going to pick Lady Eowyn or whatever. He's got this nasty covetous kind of thing going on. Well, the, I said that the handshake between the pedophiles and the communists is basically the same. All the pedophiles, so-called minor attracted the PS for pedophile, so not person, but pedophile. Uh, all of these people that they're trying to now normalize, very fast track normalizing of the the pedophiles under a brand uh, umbrella of queer theory. They have a handshake agreement with the communists. You destabilize the children, create sexual abuse, whatever it is. You can have your you let it, you help us win. You can have your pick of the kids, and that's basically what we're seeing here. And so pretty important to realize how gross this is, but I think you're going to come away realizing just how deep and dangerous and insidious this is and how desperately important it then therefore is to get all of this garbage with critical race theory and queer theory out of the schools. So welcome to Groomer Schools episode three uh, here on the New Discourses podcast. Um, so basically then I think I've outlined this enough to give you the idea that there are three things that I want to cover. One is what is what is what are the one and two or what are the big points of this? And then three is how is critical race theory, et cetera, used to make this go? And I think it's very important to understand the mechanism behind this whole program that's being introduced ramrodded into our schools. And so and that critical race theory and uh, queer theory are actually operating in tandem, kind of the left and right hands of of catastrophe here. Um so the first of the the two major things, so we got two major things that are happening and then, then why it's happening or two major objectives, I should say, and then then this other kind of tactical point. So of the those two, how this is happening points, why are they introducing queer theory? So we're just going to focus on queer theory primarily here. We're not going to get into the critical race theory till the end. Um, why are they introducing queer theory so vigorously, whether again, it's through any number of these brand names, we'll just focus in on social emotional learning and uh, comprehensive sex education for the moment, because those are the two most prominent, but it could get under the brands of ethnic studies because ident cultural identity Marxism, as I've called it, identifies, uh, cultures with identity groups and treats them in a Marxian way. So if you're gay, there's gay culture. If you're queer, there's queer culture. If you're non-binary, there's non-binary culture. And you have to see yourself as kind of like, if you're a member of that, as like a little ethno state and you have different knowledges and different ways of doing things and different governance and, and different rules, et cetera, you have to understand that they see that. Why are they though cramming all this in? And there are two primary purposes. 
And the first of these is actually to destabilize the family and separate generations. And this is, of course, very Maoist. If you don't know from the Chinese Cultural Revolution, which took place from 1966 to 1976, um, one of the things that Mao sought to do was to destroy what he called the four olds, the Suju. Um, I think I said that wrong, Jiu. Suju. Uh, the four olds need to be um, dismantled and destroyed. Those are old habits old culture, old customs, old ways of thinking. Uh, those all have to be abolished, probably Alfaven. Um, they need to be obliterated. They need to be sublated into communist ideology, really. They need to be broken down and then replaced with a communist revamping of them, which is the exact Gramscian counter-hegemony infiltration that I was just referring to as I outlined all of this. So that you can kind of see how all of this communist theory is coming together very tightly. And there's a lot of history before that. Um, you know, Mao, Mao was a member of the CCP going back to the 1920s. I don't want to get into all of it, but he actually also joined the Chinese Nationalist Party, the the Guomintang, uh, in 1923, and probably worked to destabilize the Guomintang from within by bringing in racial, helping the Communist Party bring in racial identity politics while acting as fellow travelers. Uh, they were characterized as a nationalist group that was imposing. Um, Han supremacy or Han chauvinism. Uh, how do you say that? Uh, uh, what was it? Han Hua. Is that right? Han Hua uh, Jui or something like that in Chinese. Shaowen uh, Jui. But anyway, it's Han supremacy and uh, or Han chauvinism. And they were saying that the, that the Kuomintang, by being a national a Chinese nationalist group, was trying to make all the Chinese Chinese. But really what they were doing was imposing Han identity on all 55 racial minorities of of China, racial minority groups. And so the Communist Party, the CCP, was positioning itself as as good Han, literally um, uh, Hao Han, uh, so the good Han, which is in parallel to the good whites, uh, and and saying, we're no, we're, we're, we're going to not do it like they are. And they were subverting the, the Nationalist Party, the Kuomintang, from within. And this led eventually in 1949 to the Chinese Revolution, where the CCP actually seized power. This led in the 1950s to the Great Leap Forward, where they totally botched everything. They were able to overthrow Chiang Kai-shek in 49 and uh, establish their own uh, rule. And then they screwed everything up in the Great Leap Forward. Mao gets kicked out. Mao comes back with his maneuver of the uh, cultural revolution starting in 1966, which largely indoctrinated kids in the schools to become revolutionaries. And one of the main projects was to destroy the four olds. This included, of course, severing the tie from one family generation to the other. So it's kind of important, I guess, to know all that history. Um, So separating the young generation from everything before it to create a completely kind of societal blank slate that's going to have a new ideology becomes the objective of this Maoist, or sorry, communist really, but Maoist, sure, move. Um, And this is one of the reasons that they're bringing the queer theory and the gender theory, et cetera, into the schools and the sex stuff so vigorously. The goal is to make it so children are uh, depressed and anxious, et cetera, but we'll get to that. But also it's to give them identity categories, sexual identity categories, that alienate them from their parents. So when they go, if any of it comes up with their parents, their parents, you know, 
what was the very quote that went around? I saw somebody put on the Twitter and it's hilarious where some dad who was being criticized by some non-binary or whatever. I don't have the exact thing in front of me, but um, this person posted her thing and everybody's calling the dad a king and whatever because he is. And so the, the, the daughter presumably is posted on social media. It took me however many years to work up the courage to tell my dad that I'm non-binary. And he said, stop using fucking made up bullshit words to uh, describe something that doesn't exist or something like that. And he didn't want to hear it. And that alienation, though, is exactly what we're talking about. Remember, the goal of Marxism is to they, they say they're, they're describing alienation, but their goal is to create alienation. And in this case, it's to separate one generation from the next. In fact, to separate one generation, the, the younger generation, not just from the generation above it, but from the society that the older generations had worked to create in value. So the goal is to disrupt that societal transmission from one generation of the next to cultural values and identity and kind of this continuity. Why? Because then you can foist in a new one, uh, the communist one, obviously, a new uh, socialist man or Soviet man or whatever it happens to be. In China, you know, one of the things they said is men, women, boys, girls, we are all the same. I don't remember the Chinese for that. Um but it's a thing. And so they want to separate the generations. And Mao was very successful at that. He came in, he did this, and then you had children coming home and beating up their parents and grandparents, beating up their teachers, beating up their professors, shaming them, smashing statues, smashing old temples, smashing anything that was a relic of old culture. The Red Guard were brutal and vicious. And we've actually seen, I would say so far, fairly dim echoes of that here in the United States and across the West, um, but echoes nonetheless, and they could accelerate. And if this kind of programming in the schools continues, it will accelerate because that's the purpose of this grooming in schools. It's not just to have the handshake deal with the pedophiles. The pedophiles are just a useful tool to the communists. You have to understand that they're getting used too. And on the other side, they'll probably get shot. Uh <laughs> Just like the criminals, they let out of jail so they'll go disrupt cities and, and communities and make everything unstable and make people wish for a police state that'll settle the crime problems and cause problems for all these people, accelerate the contradictions just like Lenin. On the other side, the criminals they let out of prison with their so-called bail reform will come around and just shoot ever they'll just shoot all of them when they get full power because they don't want their regime destabilized. So they're using those people to totally heinous, totally evil, totally vile. Um, and while proclaiming that what they're actually working for is those people's rights, the, no, they're turning them into shock troops that they'll then kill later. Same thing that they're trying to do with your children. But the goal is going to be to separate your children so that you can't be understood. So your child comes home and says, I'm non-binary. And you're like, I don't even know what you're talking about. And they're like, you don't understand, you know, stop that crap. Let's get you on the right track or whatever. And, uh, this is what's happening and this is how sexuality works. And you didn't want to have that conversation for like three more years, but now it's been forced on you by the schools way too early. And... Now you're stuck having this freaking conversation with your kids that you wanted to wait for a little bit more maturity. They, of course, would say it's a factor of privilege that other people don't have that opportunity or right. And that's a privilege, a feature of privilege. So it needs to be disrupted and dismantled. And the childhood innocence is the narrative that's enabling it. And that's just a, another artifact of privilege that proves that you're in a privileged position that needs to be disrupted and dismantled because racial minorities or sexual minorities or gender minorities don't have that uh, that privilege. They have to deal with the fact that they're other and they're different and they're outside of the norm that the, the dominant society uh, proclaims. Of course, this is just straight Marxism. This is Marxism. You find the, the, the dominant interests and then the people outside of it and you agitate the people outside of it and try to alienate them from it. That's Marxism in a nutshell. So they get these kids at school to adopt all these sexual identities. They don't, they can't relate to their parents. And then the, what is the classic line? Well, you just don't understand dad. You just don't understand. Well, this is put on 
absolute steroids when you start having, you know, sexual fetishism, uh, 200 different genders, 200 different sexualities, all of which are made up words that are literally mental illness given an academic term that ends in gender or sexuality or um, whatever. And uh, <laughs> something sexual, something, you know, demisexual, demiromantic, um, agender, demigender, you know, all of these complicated things, you know, gender, all of these things. And then the, the kids come home with this crap all up in their head, thinking that this applies to them. Just like any freshman taking a survey of psychology course used to be warned, like you're going to think you have every psychological illness in this book and you don't because everybody has traits of these things to some degree, but, uh, it's not you. But when you're dealing with even younger kids, you can convince them, no, you really are. You know, the fact that you're not that you're sometimes attracted to people, but only if you like them, that's got a special sexuality name. That's demisexual or whatever, and or lithsexual or whatever the hell it is. I can't remember. Um, so you've got these weird names, and they, they actually start to believe that's who they are, and they start to groom that identity into them, and then they're going to go home, and they're like, well, Mom, I'm a pansexual, lith, I'm a lithsexual, pansexual, demigender, yada, 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 and Mom's like, what? And so there's some alienation already beginning. And then mom's like, that doesn't make any sense. Here's what's really going on. You know, people aren't always turned on and people do tend to only be attracted to, especially women tend to be attracted more only when or sexually turned on only when there actually is, you know, romantic attraction as well, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. This is normal. It's not a special thing. Yada, yada, yada. You don't need these words. You don't understand mom. And then they're going to be told, well, you're, we have to do this at your school and, you know, your parents won't understand. We're going to help you transition maybe from, from boy to girl or girl to boy. And we don't, we're not going to tell your parents because they'll probably beat you up or they'll disown you or they'll try to dissuade you. They don't understand who you really are, but we here, the groomers at the school do. And so we're going to, um, you know, take, we're going to keep the parents out of this. So there's a, the goal then goal number one of introducing all this grooming crap into the schools, all this under like, again, social emotional learning and comprehensive sex ed are the two big buzz terms that are bringing it in, but it's ultimately queer theory and gender theory. Uh, the reasons that they're bringing them in is because it creates that alienation between the genders. It gives the kids. One of the two big purposes is it gives the kids a reason to look at their parents and say, you don't understand me you don't get me. You're completely separate from me. We're not going to adopt the same values that kept people like me oppressed that you have. And so you alienate one generation from all the generations before you disrupt that cultural continuity at the stage of the family, religion, family, education, media, and law. Religion's going to get hit with this too, because your religion, your parents' religion, obviously is what gave them those stupid backwards values. So that religion has to go, hello, new atheism movement as a critical, uh, religion studies movement. Actually, it's your stupid backwards Christian religion or Muslim religion or whatever religion, Jewish religion that actually gave you the wrong values about sexuality that make it so you can't understand me, mom. And so Christianity's out, religion gets disrupted, but the family also gets disrupted. And the child then is in some weird, you know, blah, 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 poly this, whatever that, you know, polyamorous and all this. And then they're not going to form stable, stable family units either. So the communist agenda to destabilize the family while shooting a nuclear missile into the side of religion at the same time is strongly achieved by bringing critical uh, gender theory and queer theory in through, say, SEL and comprehensive sex ed. So there's that aspect. So what's the second aspect? The second main objective with bringing all of this groomer, queer theory, sex ed stuff in 
is to destabilize the kids themselves. So there's one thing is to separate genders, to disrupt the cultural uh, continuity so that you can create a totally new culture. You know, we I talked about Mao there, by the way, but I should also mention Pol Pot. Pol Pot did this kind of same stuff in Cambodia. Uh, Three million murdered. Um, totally brutal. Uh, his was actually where Mao was still doing a very modernist approach. Pol Pot often gets told that he wasn't a, called a, not a real communist because he was actually postmodernist. In uh, most of his approach, he studied at the Sorbonne with a lot of the postmodernists in Paris um, and adopted a lot of postmodern ideas into his ideology. But the goal was to create for him year zero. Everything before year zero, to talk about a great reset or talk about a great leap forward or talk about a cultural revolution. Everything before in Cambodian history for Pol Pot was supposed to be erased. We're going to start afresh at year zero. Of course, this is also what happened. It was the agenda of the French Revolution, which Pol Pot, having been educated at the Sorbonne, right down from Rousseau's grave on literally the same street, uh, would have you know been aspiring to. And you know the French Revolution, they even created a new calendar that only had ten months, and that's where you end up with the so-called Thermidorian reaction, which was actually referring to a period of time and a month that nobody recognizes because it's a pretend month. Um, of course, calling them months is a little silly if there's only ten of them because there's, the the month is for month, and moon goes moon. The moon has a twenty-nine day. Uh, cycle of phases. And that's why our months are roughly 30 days. But what are you gonna do? Um, the point was to create a year zero. So the point here is also going to be to create a year zero. And one of the ways that you create a year zero is by uh, not just separating one gen generation from the other, but also by destabilizing the people. Oh, no, sorry, that's not even what I wanted to say. I just want to say that the previous, the previous, the previous, um, point that I was making that separating one generation from the next is to create a condition in which the next generation will accept a year zero. Then if you want that to be a very moldable new period of time going forward, that's where you want destabilized kids. That's how I wanted to say that. So you can see again, here we have the same communist plot. This is I've invoked Mao, which is correct. And I've invoked Pol Pot in Cambodia with their genocide, which is also correct. Um, you want to separate one generation from the from the next, so you kind of hit the reset button, and then you want a population that's ready to take up an entirely new way of being in the new calendar, the new regime, the new world order, whatever it happens to be, and those people need to be uh, destabilized. So here, our name for this thing is going to be the Great Reset, and that's kind of the context in which this is happening, and remember, your kids are pawns in this project. So the second reason then is to actually destabilize kids. And this is really what I was talking about in episode two. If you, you know, the communist plot thing that I just kind of summarized again was kind of episode one of groomer schools. Episode two of groomer schools was about this um, queer theory being an identity without an essence. So if they're going to indoctrinate your program, your kids in queer theory, the goal is to give them the inability to figure out who they are as an identity. In the second episode, you know, I went through a lot of stuff. I'm not an expert in childhood development, but I know enough to know, for example, that the first stable categories of identity, you have to learn identity like everything else to a big degree. And you have to, under, that's like, that's a project. You're growing into who you are as an adult. It usually takes people till they're about 30 to fully kind of get a hold of who they kind of are. And then that begins to really mature. Like 25 is a mark where people's uh, 
brains have actually finally developed. But identity category is a huge thing. So one of the first things that young children do is separate the world into four categories that are on a grid, adult versus child and male versus female. So there are men, there are women, there are boys and there are girls. And they see themselves. And if you've ever dealt with children, you'll realize their categorizations on those things is very rigid. That's a grown up thing. This is a kid thing. That's a boy thing. That's a girl thing. They're very rigid. And they often, you know, boys think girls are gross and girls think uh, boys are gross and adults are things to be deferred to. And, you know, there's this and kids are on their own plane. It's like there's a very rigid um, breaking of of. Uh, society or uh, of, of people of, of the population into four identity categories right out of the, the, the gate for kids. You'll notice that race wasn't on the list. Um, it's not. It's adult, child, male, female. And the that four-part uh, identity categorization becomes very developmentally appropriate. Of course, queer theory just wants to disrupt all that. So when you see this stuff going into like kindergartens and even pre-K where boy and girl are going to be made unclear and they're going to try to disrupt the idea that there's a hierarchy of, um, you know, between adult and child and we're going to disrupt childhood innocence, that's what's going on. But when you go all the way to full queer theory, whether it's with younger kids or even through the teen years, all along, and teen years are very important because that's where, um, Puberty is happening. So you're actually becoming a sexually mature. You're, per, you're moving from that pre-sexual, so by default, in some sense, asexual identity into a mature sexual identity as a human being. Like something biological is actually going on. By the way, queer theorists, it's not all up for grabs like you want to pretend so that you can do things like lower the age of consent as low as you want because you have your handshake with the pedophiles. What you have there is a very important time for people to uh, to identify and become in touch with their adult identity as male, female, masculine, feminine, gay, straight, whatever it happens to be. And so if you can get people stuck where they're having to chase an identity without an essence, where they, just like we read in the paper in episode two, that the goal is not to allow a stable LGBT identity. Let me see if I can actually find where she says that. The goal is not to allow a stable LGBT identity. She says in this article, this is in the introduction, a move beyond commonly employed sociological techniques for securing the child's quote right to LGBTQ identity and assert that queer theory is growing attention to discourses of childhood, authors methodological, pedagogical, and epistemological advances to the provision of care for all children. Um, and she says that my argument begins with the premise that developmental theory and its attendant model of developmentally appropriate practice can be destructive to some children's imaginative and social capacities when not attuned to their possible queer presence and futures. So the goal she's laying out, and it's more explicit somewhere um, in here, I remember, but I don't have it right in front of me in that regard. I don't want to waste time looking for it. The goal is not to allow kids to develop adolescence, to develop a mature identity for themselves, a healthy, solid, stable identity. The goal is to keep things unstable. Identity must be queer. It must be fluid. It must be the identity without an essence. It must be constantly movable, which makes it impossible to get to know yourself or in the common parlance today, it's impossible to become based. And it also makes you very moldable, especially when you're a young child and you're trying to figure this stuff out and your, your categories, your basic categories of human beings are being destabilized and blurred. There's no uh, the hierarchy between adults and children, which is where boundary setting and lots of other, basically everything that makes the uh, immature child um, 
you know, able to function and be safe and to grow in a healthy way as guided and mentored by mature adults who, by the way, again, queer theorists, biological things are happening here. Human beings do not come out of the womb fully developed. Their brains don't even finish cooking for 25 years. Uh, so like messing with that is very destabilizing. The goal there is to destabilize the identity. Um, the reason that they want to destabilize identity, though, is because they came to understand in the, through the 20th century, first kind of in a big burst in their late 1930s, and then in a, another big burst in the 1970s, 1960s and early 1970s, that the proletariat, uh, the working class doesn't, I should say, the working class doesn't make for a good proletariat. In other words, the working class doesn't make for a good uh, base that you can radicalize and have a revolution with. Because if you start agitating them to become Marxist revolutionaries, they're going to start agitating for economic changes. And then, frankly, when some of those economic changes begin to happen without revolution through incremental changes, maybe they're antitrust laws, maybe, you know, there are certain worker provisions, safety, protection, fair pay, whatever they happen to be, different provisions come in. The working class actually can start to build a better life and become a stable middle class, which is for Marxists, a very bourgeois, terrible thing to have happen. And in fact, they become counter-revolutionary, as Herbert Marcuse pointed out in 69. You end up with a counter-revolutionary force out of what you thought was supposed to be a revolutionary force. So Marxism, in a sense, becomes self-defeating because as you start to work people up to become a revolutionary entity, they end up achieving just enough changes and through liberal incremental means step-by-step progress, which these all of these ideologies, including critical race theory, explicitly repudiate, to where their lives become better, they can build a better life, and as Marcusa points out, it is in fact a good life that does, as he says, deliver the goods, but it's not a communist life. And so they say that it prevents them from envisioning an even better possibility that's outside of the existing structure. So in a sense, the stable the structure become, that the society becomes self-stabilizing if you agitate along economic lines. And so this became a problem. This is where Marcusa is saying, we need to find a new proletariat. We need a new working class when he writes in the essay on liberation. Uh, and he talks about in one dimensional man, uh, his 64 book and his 69 essay. And so where do they find it? Well, they realize at some point, because Marcuse is talking about the feminists, the sexual minorities, the gender minorities, well, not the gender minorities, sexual minorities and the racial minorities, and particularly his so-called ghetto populations, that if you go into identity politics, there's some energy there. And this is what I said is the birth of identity Marxism, which later after postmodernism got infused, took a cultural turn. And so this is literally um, this shift to identity politics, as I said in the episode of the podcast where I talk about the birth of the two podcasts where I talk about the birth and development of identity Marxism. Um, what you have happening is them shifting out of economics, which can be stabilized and into uh, personal identity, which if you disrupt that is very difficult to stabilize. And the reason is, as I've said many, many times, and think again, the context here is that this is what they want to do to your kids is that, and kids become very important here, uh, is that they, they wanted, the, the point of a critical theory is to generate psychopathologies and personality disorders. That's what Marcuse's point is in saying in the first section of Essay on Liberation that, the, uh, that they're looking for a biological foundation for socialism where biological doesn't mean literally genetics. Um, and so, so we can avoid the eugenicist charge. What that must mean 
by saying that it's going to occur through interjection of morals and making it so people can't survive without liberation is that they're inducing psychopathologies and personality disorders. Now, psychopathologies can probably be introduced into people at any age and maybe personality disorders can, but most of the personality disorders set in in childhood. Uh, schizoid personality disorder is probably, for example, caused specifically by having inappropriate romantic expectations or uh, other kinds of expectations between adults and children by breaking down the, the usual adult-child relationship, usually between the ages of like six and ten. Uh, and then you have this emotional retreat by the victim, the child, into kind of their real self retreats into an internal cocoon and they create a split off or schizoidal uh, false identity that they project outwardly that has no real emotional engagement. And schizoid personality disorder, uh, I bet if we did a wide survey, probably shows up disproportionately. And you see this um, from like Lobachevsky and, and so on. Uh, but it probably shows up disproportionately in identity type activists, um, feminists, I would say in particular, queer theorists is probably very high because one of the traits with queer theory, for example, here, one of the traits of a schizoid personality disorder is that they tend to write stories for themselves and envision themselves a very active creative memory. They could make great novelists where they're, they're writing stories and like the novel of all of their experiences and their, their stories of their life and kind of having massive psychological meltdowns when life doesn't actually deliver those uh, to them, when when their fantasy world that they're creating for themselves doesn't match reality. You know, we're also, when we're looking at these issues, though, all of the cluster Bs, um, you know, I mentioned schizoid, but there's also borderline, antisocial, narcissistic, etc. You get people to focus on their identity all the time as a kid and tell them that that's what makes them special and that they have to think about who they happen to be and how it makes them special. I mean, this is an affirm everything, affirming, 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 celebrate, 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 celebrate. Narcissism, here we come. All of these kind of being a foil to an adult project is going to create borderline and antisocial personality disorders. So you're going to create personality disorders. Those don't easily resolve. You can fix people's economic situation and they give up their revolutionary energy. But if you break people psychologically and give them a personality disorder, they're a dissident for life. That's again where I want to remind you, your children in schools you pay for with your tax dollars are the targets of this intentional agenda. That's what's actually going on with groomer schools. And so to destabilize the children so that they'll become, as they grow up, somebody who cannot get to know themselves, riddled with anxiety, riddled with depression, riddled with social anxiety, riddled with personality disorders, budding personality disorders, I should say, creates a revolutionary class where they cannot fit into society, exactly like Marcusa argues is absolutely necessary to create the liberation revolution that he's aiming for in the Essay on Liberation in 1969. So this is exactly, exactly what the purpose is. So purpose number one of all of this groomer school stuff is to separate one generation from the other. You can create a year zero that way. Pur uh, purpose number two is to create a destabilized population that can't function outside of a context in which they're basically being affirmed and taken care of constantly and that can be told how things are going to be. You know, it's very easy to create one identity crisis after another identity crisis after another 
with this kind of destabilized population that can't know who it is. But you have, don't worry, you have, you know, the grooming facilitator to come in and say, you know, well, let's talk about how you really feel about things and blah, blah, blah. And don't you think that maybe you would be a really lovely little boy instead of a little girl? You know, if you ever feel that way, I'm happy to talk to you and bring you, this is grooming. And what you're actually doing is creating a destabilized person who then is looking outward to figure out how to figure out who they are while projecting that it's happening within them. This is a, this is, when I say this is stuff, psychological abuse on children and the people who are doing this belong, they don't just need to be fired. They belong in prison. I fully mean it. This is, and then you see that this is actually a agenda being driven by a communist attempt to destabilize the population so that they can have their revolution led by the students. Remember, Marcuse was a big, we need to use the students. Why? Because they're young, they're idealistic. Nobody wants to like crack too hard on a kid, a young person because, and it doesn't work anyway because they're so young and idealistic. You know, Mao used the Red Guard. The whole picture is there. Hitler had his, had his Hitler youth. I mean, this whole thing, you know, to, to bring the kids in that way is a thing. And that's what they're trying to do with your kids in the school. And so we're reproducing Maoism again, uh, destabilize the individual, get them to think in terms of identities where some authority figure is saying these identities are good for these reasons, these identities are bad. And that brings us to the third point of this episode. How does critical race theory tie into all this? Because I've spent all this time in these podcasts talking about queer theory and critical race theories there. And I've been saying for a couple of years that critical race theory, and I did a podcast about this, critical race theory and queer theory are not particularly compatible theories. Um, I'm not going to go into why here, but they're not particularly compatible. And a lot of people can see that, uh, the most simple is that, um, an identity without an essence at queer theory and the moral racial essentialism in the heart of critical race theory means that every identity has way too much essence. So you can see they're not particularly compatible theories. And I've been trying to tell people, no, they work like they're, you have one monster and it has a left hand and a right hand. And those sometimes they're at odds, but most of the time those left and right hands work in coordination to do damage. That's what's going on in the schools with critical race theory right next to um, queer theory. And again, it's all happening under the brand name or being brought in through the brand name, I should say, of social emotional learning, culturally responsive and sensitive and whatever and sustaining teaching, blah, blah, blah. Um, so here's what's happening. You have to understand that what the way that communist communism works at kind of the cultural level to achieve its revolutions, what it tries to do is it tries to take the repositories of privilege, particularly children in the Maoist and post-Maoist eras, it wants to take the children, and of course, this is what Lukács was up to, and it wants to not just separate them from the previous generation and get them to destroy the previous society and be moldable to a new one, but it also, um, and if I made a noise there, I bumped my microphone, I'm sorry, uh, it also uh, very deliberately wants to take children of privilege and to destabilize those people most, the people who are in some regard the inheritors the, the chief inheritors of the cultural milieu that already exists. So the, that's what they would call the culturally privileged people. Um, and it wants to destabilize those people most because they are where things are going to move the most effectively from one generation to the next. So if they can change those people, they can change everything. Okay, so critical race theory exists to position whiteness as bourgeois property, as bourgeois cultural property that needs to be abolished. And so it scapegoats whiteness 
And it says that white people are intrinsically tied to whiteness, whether they want to be or not. Asians ex- apparently have white adjacency. Other people act white. Some other, you know, light-skinned Latinos apparently also, etc., would have um, whiteness available to them and so on. And whiteness is inherently anti-blackness. And there's your simple dichotomy. So what they want to do is they want to peel off those most privileged kids and make sure that they are the ones who get the most destabilized. Well, isn't this just genius? Isn't this just brilliant? Because with the scapegoat, of course, right now, um, white is still the majority race of the United States. It will not always be that way, probably, but it will will be um, a very large racial block for the foreseeable future throughout the West, but in particular in the United States. Because that's in Canada, because that's the two main targets. Uh, Canada, United States, and Great Britain are their biggest targets, by the way. Because if those, especially U.S. and Great Britain, fall, then they can they can move their ball. And if one or the other of the U.S. or the U.K. rejects this, they're going to have a much harder time, especially if it's the United States. But anyway, imagine picture picture this: you use something like critical race theory to scapegoat whiteness. So you tell all the kids in their school using critical race culturally sensitive or whatever teaching that whiteness is bad association with whiteness is bad there's all this racial guilt that goes with it your ancestors caused all these things so you're complicit in that you benefit from it so you're bad so white racial identity or white adjacency or anything that can be branded white supremacy culture etc but particularly white racial identity becomes taboo and for young people it's very easy to get them because they're young they're sorting out identity they're looking for ways to understand themselves becomes kind of a big deal you really don't want to be encouraging racial identities in kids but critical race theory thrives on it and here's why white racial identity because it is the avatar of what marxists all along would call dominant culture i think that that's a marxian trap to talk about it as dominant culture but that's their phrase for it so they represent the children of dominant culture who are going to have the most uh, infiltration of dominant culture into them from one generation to the next, and they have their identity made taboo. So there's nothing cool about being white or straight, etc. But especially nothing cool about being white. In fact, there's something uncool about being white. That's why you have so many people. Partly because there's an, there's an employment advantage, but partly just because it's cooler trying to claim that they have little bits of this identity or that and they're faking it you know elizabeth warren's a native american etc um whatever but it's because white is taboo and not as cool under this doctrine of whiteness scapegoating at the heart of the racial conflict theory that is critical race theory and so white kids don't want to be white or if they are and if they're stuck being white they can't pass off anything else. What are they left with? Well, they have to adopt some other identity category that has social cash. And what are those going to look like? Well, they can become non-binary. They can become trans. They can become some sexual minority. They can become demisexual, which is just meaning basically meaning being a girl. Uh, they can, if they're female especially, they can adopt any number of these weird sexual identities. They can adopt a mentally ill identity. They're anxious. Remember, I am the CIA. I have generalized anxiety disorder because identity, uh, mental illnesses become identity factors. So what you're going to do is you're going to take these white kids and very disproportionately create gender dysphoria, sexual dysphoria, uh, social adoption of gender and sexual minority uh 
identities that they're then going to try to live up to through the fact that they're alter casting themselves into those roles and they're trying to live up to them, which is going to mean they're living a lie and not getting to know themselves, more destabilization, more anxiety, more depression. And they're also going to do the same thing with anxiety, depression, other mental illnesses, including personality disorders. Oh, I'm just schizoid. I'm very interesting. Yada, yada, yada. And so the white kids in particular, lacking any cool identity category, can find a cool identity category by claiming to be a gender or sexual or mental capacity minority. And so they groom, again, grooming schools, white kids in particular, into becoming uh, self-identifying as a gender uh, sexual minority or as having a mental illness, which will then, you know, the, the social contagion theory, in other words, that, oh, my friends are doing it, so I have to do it too. That's like the tip of a really ugly iceberg because there's actually a selection pressure being caused by critical race theory that drives that, that, uh, that social contagion. It's not just my friend said she's trans and she became interesting, so I want to be trans. It's my friend said she's trans and she's interesting and I'm not cool any other way. And in fact, who I happen to be is demonized because my racial identity is scapegoated. So that's where I'm saying left hand and right hand. You know, on the right hand, have them smashing down uh, your sense of self by creating a racial consciousness. That's the point of critical race series, to raise a racial consciousness. And then to say these races are intrinsically tied up with something bad or are bad or have moral deficiency or whatever, there is no such thing as a positive white identity is an exact quote from the end of white fragility by Robin D'Angelo. There is no such thing as a positive white identity, but there's a positive queer identity. There's a positive mentally ill identity. And then you set them loose in their kind of social malus, especially on social media, Tumblr comes to mind, but everywhere, TikTok, etc., And boom, you have the perfect recipe to completely destabilize primarily the most privileged group racially scape as they would see it. So you racially scapegoat children of members of the so-called dominant racial culture while giving them a handful of sexual identities to get to occupy or mental illness categories to get to occupy uh, that make them interesting or disabled categories. Look at those poor people who actually say that they want to be made blind or that they want to be amputees or they want to be disabled in some way or that they are disabled and they want to keep their identity as such. It's not just that there's a desirable positive pressure drawing them to adopting these things as identities, disabled, queer, um, gender minority or whatever. There's also a, a pressure pushing them in that direction in the first place because they are being made to think of themselves in terms of a racial identity and then being told if they're white or white adjacent that their racial identity is bad. This is extraordinarily insidious. There's, there's, you must understand that the, the two are working in coordination in this way to steer your kids right into a ditch. And that ditch is going to create all kinds of destabilization problems because that destabilized population is very moldable to the new communist ideology that's going to be foisted upon when the revolution is fully complete. But they're also going to become the Red Guard just like Mao had. Now, as far as the parallels to Mao go, this gets even worse. If you don't know, and I don't, again, I don't want to misrepresent myself as being overly educated about Mao's everything, but I know that he separated the population, in particular also the children, into 10 categories. Um, five of these were labeled red. Red for communism means good. Five of these were labeled black. And they were bad. And so you have this exact thing. 
If you're white, you are labeled with a black category. That's a scapegoated category. That's bad. That's one of the privileged, the bourgeois categories of identity. Bad. So what can you do? Well, if you want one of the, there are, however, these red categories that you can adopt, like being non-binary. Or in other words, in other ways, gender fluid, gender queer, gender whatever, queer something. And so you're, you, you label kids with a black identity, and you tell them there's a red identity that they can adopt if they wish. But then it happens to be a the, the black identity is their race, something they can do nothing about. And the red identity is a destabilizing sexual identity that's supposed to be an identity without an essence that's a, that if it's ever made stable is, whoops, a black identity again. Being stably gay or lesbian is a black identity now. Their categories are much broader. Because why? Because it reaffirms the binary, right? So whoops, you can become non-binary. You can become trans. And that's why there's a pressure to take kids who are probably gay and transition them. And then those kids are going to have problems for their whole lives. So look how much alienation you achieve and look how much separation you you, you achieve uh, from their previous generation. You really don't understand. So you are using something like critical race theory to take an issue like race or ethnicity, which you can do nothing about. It is literally an accident of birth to create what Mao would have regarded as a black category and then offering kids red categories that they can adopt if they happen to be in that uh, in one of those 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 places and so they're going to uh, the pressure to adopt a red category when you create these kind of struggle session based communist little little grooming schools is enormous and so you can see that the grooming dynamic there is incredibly strong. And you must understand that this is exactly what's going on in the schools. This is exactly why they're bringing things in like social-emotional learning to break kids down psychologically, to tell them that they're products of trauma constantly so that they're psychologically and emotionally vulnerable, to tell them that certain identity categories are if, if we are using Maoist language or black, but here are these red ones that you can adopt instead. And what happens when you adopt a red identity in, in Maoism? You become part of the red guard. And so your job is to then perpetuate the abuser becomes, or the abused become the abuser. The cycle of abuse persists. So those kids then bully other kids for their identity while creating an image of, hey, look, there's this new, very privileged identity, these, what Mao would call red identities, and you can be one of us. And they bully them and they break them down. And then they be, their, their black identity kids adopt a red identity. So critical race theory in schools, not only is trying to racially sensitize so they can have a black lives matter style, uh, red guard revolution, say like we had last year after they indoctrinated or programmed a bunch of kids to think in terms of race all the time, but also to create a selection pressure to drive them into queer theory, which will give them the idea that they have a moldable identity that could be, say, made into the new liberated identity. Liberated sexual liberation is kind of at the heart of all of these things. So this is the dynamic of groomer school. So to summarize this episode of the podcast here, groomer school episode three, what I've done is I've laid out an argument based on the first two parts of the Groomer School series, that there is a long-standing communist plot to use sexual and we'll add in gender, queer theory generally grooming, style grooming into the schools to destabilize the population in order to get ready to have a communist revolution. Secondly, that this is being done specifically to sever um, your connection to your sense of identity. So you're severing from the previous generation, causing kids to want to destroy the previous generation that doesn't understand and is the source of their problems and oppression. 
uh, and all the old values, including the old religion that brought us there, that all needs to, whether it's Christianity or whether it's, you know, American, uh, Americanism or Western values or whatever, those all have to be dismantled and destroyed now because they are the source of their oppression. That's step one. Step two is you create a destabilized sense of identity itself because um, identity problems are far less easy to resolve than economic problems. So you're creating a new base for revolutionary energy in destabilized a destabilized population, especially youth population, that's going to become the uh, the drivers of the revolution, the student movement, as Marcusa had it, the Red Guard, as Mao had it. Remember again, these are your children that they're doing this to. And they are going to be, <laughs> very important to realize, that they're doing this with identity factors because you can stabilize people economically and bring them out of this nightmare. And it's very difficult to do that if they give them a personality disorder, a psychological disorder, or a identity crisis-based disorder. That destabilization is going to be deep, it's going to be scarring, and it might be permanent in many cases. They are your children, by the way. And so the purpose of that, though, is to create a very strong um, cycle driving the exact same dynamic that Mao used to create his Red Guard in the Cultural Revolution of China between 66 and 76 that obviously flipped China over and established Mao's absolute rule. By pushing kids in a, in a, in a, in a way where they're, they're born, the, the identity they were born with, if it's just, if they happen to have been a racial minority, especially if they're black, then they, you think, oh, well, they're getting a pass. No, they're being agitated by race. So they're turning black people into the racial shock troops because everything's anti-blackness and then manipulating all the races in between and the white kids are being scapegoated completely. And so the kids in between, the so-called browns, are being told that their complicity in whiteness is horrific, so they're going to uh, bully the white kids and move away from it if it all works. But whiteness becomes demonized. It becomes a black identity. You can't have a black identity. And then they're offering them and grooming them into these sexual identities and mental illness category identities and gender identities that give them a way out. It's not just that they're given a pathway to having an identity that their friends will consider cool. It's got a much deeper, uh, nastier thing and a nastier element to it, which is that they're trying to break from the previous generations of society, create a moldable population and destabilized population that can be molded and it requires affirmation and care, uh, say from the state that they're going to use as the basis for the new regime. And they're doing it by creating a very strong identity based selection pressure where the so-called, uh, Maoist language, not racial language, um, black identities are so heavily scapegoated that the red identities that they construct with the sexual grooming, um, become very desirable for people to move into. And so you can see what's going on. And you can also see why this is something that, A, in the short term, you need to get your kids away from this. However you have to, you have to get your kids away from this. But B, because this, the, the public schooling system and, and even the private schooling system, which is infected in the same way because it's in it literally everything, um, and private schools having lots of resources tend to be uh, targeted very vigorously with this uh, because it's all making sure everybody stays in those you know, acceptable bourgeois politics that nobody would want to have the wrong ones. Nobody would want to do something hateful or bigoted. So the goal then, short term, is you have to get your kids away from this. Long term, we have to reclaim our schools. We actually have to purge our education system, both public and private, of this stuff. It has to be removed 
And I will use the phrase in the literal sense when people will seize upon it if they want with extreme prejudice, because this dynamic is incredibly powerful and incredibly effective. And that's why there's social emotional learning in the schools. Make your kids psychologically and emotionally vulnerable, then hit them with this, this big dynamic I just described for the purposes of destabilizing them so that they can have a moldable population and can sever the tie to the previous generation. So now you understand why we have grooming schools. Now you understand what is really going on, whether again, social emotional learning, comprehensive sex education, critical race theory, culture responsive teaching, ethnic studies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is all just a bunch of brand names that are being applied to this exact strategy to destroy your kids, to destroy our society. And it's happening in our schools on our taxpayer dime. And we have to fight it. We must fight it. We must win.